Thanks, Neil. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you know everything about us. Thank you that you know how we're feeling and thinking this morning. That you know the situations that we've come from and that face us as we go back into the world. And we pray now that the time that we deliberately put aside to listen to your word and allow it to infuse us and affect us and shape us and change us, that your Holy Spirit would be at work in our hearts and minds, applying this truth into each of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I'm very grateful that most of you opted to stay in um, as uh, Gemma was laying out that smorgasbord of choice uh, before you, different groups and topics, um, and, and, and some of you could stay and listen to Dave, uh, was the end option, but uh, thank you for staying with me. And um, what we're doing this morning is we're finishing our series looking at a life worth living, the sort of life that God intends for us to live. And over the past few weeks, we've been looking at different aspects of how God wants us to live. And last week, we looked at how, as Christians, we deal with the whole subject of grief and sadness. Um, If you were here last Sunday evening, we had an incredible interview uh, with Fiona Foreman as she shared with us her journey over the last couple of years following the death uh, of one of their children and uh, just shared in a very honest and transparent and with real integrity and kindness and compassion and at times raw emotion uh, how the last two years have been for her a very much an up and down journey. Well today we're looking if you like from the sublime to the ridiculous because we go from managing grief and how we cope with death and dying to the whole subject of how, as Christians, we practice joy. And it, it may appear at first glance to be a huge clash of gears. How can you deal with a subject like death and dying and then suddenly switch and speak about joy? Well, hopefully, as we go through the next few minutes, you'll see that the two aren't actually diametrically opposed, but actually feed in to the other. Because what we're talking about this morning is joy, and the Christian aspect of joy, the Christian definition of joy, which is different to how the world thinks about it. Joy in the Christian faith is something that is supposed to be the sort of benchmark of Christians. Now, if you've been around Peace and G's uh, for some time, you'll hear different types of music that we use. We love traditional hymns. We love modern worship songs. We uh, get those modern worship songs from a variety of sources. It might be uh, Hillsong. It might be Worship Central. It might be Bethel. It'll be different places. One of the bands that, uh, whose songs we use quite regularly is a, a band called Wren Collective. And Wren Collective uh, come from Northern Ireland from Bangor. And they started releasing albums in 2010. And we sing songs like Lighthouse. Uh, There's a great favorite, which is a a sort of version of Old Lang Syne uh, that we sing that we only reserve for special occasions, um, maybe when a member of staff is leaving, or or Christmas, or a special service. We roll it out for weddings and everybody cries. It's great. Um, But it's a great song and a great 
looking back to what God has done. Well, they have a whole theology, hopefully, behind what they write and what they sing. And one of their albums, their fourth album, was called The Art of Celebration. And the leader of Wren Collective, Gareth Gilkerson, said this, Joy, he said, is a spiritual discipline. We as a people are much more inclined toward negativity and cynicism. We don't find it easy or natural to pursue joy. And that's why God, in his word, actually commands us to celebrate. We come by a gospel worth celebrating before a celebrating king. We need to get down to the serious business of joy. We must wrestle for our blessing. We must fight for our joy. Now, again, at first glance, the idea of joy being a spiritual discipline could appear quite odd. But you see, what we're talking about this morning is not happiness. That's a whole different thing. We're not talking about an emotion. We're not talking about a feeling. We're not talking about those moments when we feel caught up, even in in worship perhaps, or in the, the beauty of a sunset or a sunrise. That's part of it. But this is something deeper. This is something more robust. This is something more resilient. This is something far more profound than happiness. Joy is something else. Another Irish Christian, C.S. Lewis, described joy as the serious business of heaven. The serious business of heaven. So joy is something different. It's not feeling happy. It's not smile and everything will be okay. It's not thinking positive thoughts. It's not ignoring pain and sadness and grief and death and dying. But it's how we get strength even in and through situations like that. It's not what has been described as happy clappy Christianity. And sometimes that term is used to describe P's and G's, often by another clergy person. And it invokes something within me that is not a fruit of the Spirit. Um, And I think that is so unfair as a description of us as a church to write us off and dismiss us as a happy, clappy church. And actually the phrase again and again that comes from people, often from other churches, often other clergy, people who are in training for ordained ministry, who come on placement here is, oh, you're not the church I thought you were. You think. And you take things seriously. So this isn't smile and everything will be okay. This isn't put on a happy face and sing worship songs. That's not what this is about. It's something different, deeper, more profound and richer and more robust and resilient. John Ortberg wrote this. When we celebrate, he said, we exercise our ability to see and feel goodness in the simplest gifts of God. Then we're able to delight today in something we didn't even notice yesterday and our capacity for joy increases. So that's this spiritual discipline of joy, the spiritual discipline of celebration. 
And it is striking again and again throughout the Bible that God tells his people to celebrate, tells his people to rejoice, tells them to put aside time, to put aside resources, to deliberately choose intentionally, purposefully to celebrate. Israel is given three annual festivals. And they're given those three annual festivals, Passover, Purim, and Hanukkah, to deliberately set aside time to celebrate. To step back from their daily work, to step back from what's going on in all of their lives, and three times a year to deliberately set aside time a week, each time perhaps, or days. It's not just an evening, it's, it's days. To put aside the best food, the best drink, and basically to have parties. But as they have parties, as they set aside time, as they put aside resources, they're to do something. They're to tell each other stories, stories of God's goodness, stories of God's kindness, stories of God's greatness, stories of God's rescue, stories of God's provision, stories of God's blessing. They're told to remind each other who God is and what he has done. Three times a year they're told to stop to celebrate, to eat, and to drink, and remember God's goodness, remember God's faithfulness, remember God's character, and remember God's promises. There's that time when Jerusalem had been rebuilt, the walls had fallen down, and in the book of Nehemiah, we read how this process begins of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And after this building project has been completed, and there's a reason why churches and preachers always go to the book of Nehemiah when they're thinking about doing a building project. At the, at the end, the, the people gather together to celebrate the fact that this has been achieved. And we're told the people gather together in a great assembly and, and Nehemiah and Ezra and the Levites gather the people together and they start to, to read out from the book of the law of Moses. And as they start to read out the, from the book of the law of Moses, the people begin to weep. The people begin to cry out because they realize how far short of God's standards they've fallen. And they start to weep and they start to moan and they start to mourn and they start to grieve. And this goes on for a little while. But then Nehemiah, the governor who's overseen this building project, steps forward. And in Nehemiah chapter 8 verses 9 and 10, he says this. This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks. Send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. See, this is what it means for the joy of the Lord to be your strength, is that it's as you remember who God is, as you remember what he's done, 
as you remember God's kindness, as you remember God's goodness, as you remember God's greatness, as you remember God's generosity, as you remember God's provision, as you remind yourself and we remind each other who God really is, something starts to change. Something starts to happen. We start to remember who God is. Things don't seem so bleak. Things don't seem so dark because God is in charge. And Nehemiah says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And that occurs again and again in the Old Testament. And here in the New Testament, the same thing happens. It's quite striking that the first miracle that Jesus performs isn't in a temple, isn't in a synagogue, isn't in a religious service of worship. It's in the middle of a week-long wedding reception where he changes phenomenal amount of water, 180 gallons, into the finest red wine. That's the sign of the coming of the the Messiah, is 180 gallons of the best red wine. And and to the, the distress of Baptists and free Presbyterians, it wasn't grape juice. It was the best red wine. People remarked upon it. They said other people serve the best stuff first and they keep the the dodgy stuff for when people have had a bit too much. You've kept the best stuff until last. And here in the book of Philippians, that passage that Neil read for us a few moments ago, again and again we find a repeated instructions. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say, Rejoice. Do you know, on the Amazon Kindle device, the Bible is the most highlighted book. Of all the books on Amazon Kindle, the Bible is the most highlighted, the one that people take time and highlight passages. And of the most highlighted book on a Kindle, the most highlighted passage is this passage. Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 to 9. Why is that? Why is that? Because it's intriguing that Paul by now is about 60 years of age. He's been following Jesus for about 30 years. He's been whipped five times, beaten with rods three times, left for dead once. He's been shipwrecked. And now he's writing to this church in Rome where he is. He's writing from Rome. He's in prison He's facing imperial trial and probably certain death, execution under the emperor. And writing to this church hundreds of miles away that he helped to form in Philippi, he writes to them, and there's a theme that runs right through this book. And the theme is rejoice. He actually tells the Philippian church 16 times to rejoice. I don't know about you, but if someone writes me a letter and they include the same instruction, command, encouragement 16 times, you sort of get the impression that you need to hear it. Why did the Philippian church need to be told to rejoice? Well, Philippi, if you know anything about it, was a colony of Rome. It had been made a colony of Rome. And what that meant was that if you were a citizen of Philippi, you were the same as a citizen of Rome. But something else would then happen in that being made a Roman colony, a 
citizenship being granted, what would happen was that the existing buildings in Philippi would be reduced to rubble. They'd be knocked down, they'd be demolished. A bit like the St. James Center, completely knocked down, wiped off the face of the earth. Thank you, Lord. It's gone. Now, what would be rebuilt in its place was a miniature version of Rome. So in Philippi, you'd have a miniature version of Rome, so the same streets, sort of miniature versions of the same buildings. Well, who was living in Philippi? The people who were living in Philippi, for the majority, they were ex-military. They were people who'd served in the Roman army, people who'd been legionaries, people who'd been centurions. They were ex-military. It was a place where people were incredibly proud of the fact that they were Philippian citizens. That's why Paul writes to them earlier in the letter, and he says, remember, your citizenship is in heaven. Your primary allegiance is not to Philippi. Now, if you're being a citizen of Philippi and a citizen of Rome, you have to therefore make Philippi a smaller version of Rome. If Paul writes to them and says, you are a citizen of heaven, what he's saying to them is your job is to make Philippi a version of heaven. See, the Bible doesn't speak about us going up to heaven. Again and again, the Bible speaks about heaven being brought down here on earth. Heaven coming here. Revelation, I saw a new Jerusalem coming down. It's not about us going up. It's about us living and praying in such a way that heaven comes down. So Paul says, you are citizens of heaven. Your first allegiance is to the kingdom of heaven, not Philippi or Rome. But your job, therefore, is to make Philippi a colony of heaven. What does that mean for us? That means that our first allegiance is not to Edinburgh. It's not to Glasgow. It's not to Morningside or Stockbridge or wherever we live. To Leith. It means our primary allegiance is not to Scotland, or England, or Ireland, or the USA, but if we're Christians, our primary allegiance is to the kingdom of heaven. And our responsibility as Christians is to live our lives in such a way that this place becomes a colony of heaven. How does that happen? How does that happen? That happens by us realizing that the joy of the Lord is our strength. Now, you may know people who used to serve in the military. I know some. Some of them are lovely people. But often experience of being in the military can lead to a certain cynicism and a certain hardness, sometimes even a bitterness and sometimes an anger. So Paul writes to this church in Philippi and he says, I want you to live lives that are different. I want you to lead lives that are distinctive. I want you to lead lives in such a way that other people see that heaven is being built in Philippi. Philippian Christians, I want you to do something that is different and distinctive. Something that will make you stand out amongst the people amongst whom you live. And what's that thing? I want you to rejoice. I want you to be joyful. 
That's supposed to be the authentic characteristic of Christians, that we are people of joy. Now, just look at the people either side of you. Do they look joyful? I remember someone's looking at you, and there's about 300 of you looking at me. But as Christians, we are supposed to be people who resonate joy. Now, the sadness is that if we were to go out into the streets and ask people in Edinburgh, ask people in Scotland, can you give me the top five, six, seven, eight words that you would associate with the church in Scotland? I don't think joy would feature very highly. Most people don't look at the church in Scotland and go, yeah, there's one thing you can say about those Christians. They're joyful. You know, I've said it before, but there's a reason why those elder penguins in happy feet are portrayed as Scottish Presbyterian Christians. <laughs> You're no supposed to dance. Now that sadly is the, the image often that we give off as Scottish Christians. And yet Paul says to the church in Philippine, Paul says to the church in Scotland, Paul says to the church in Edinburgh, Paul says to you and to me, knowing that they're about to undergo extreme persecution, that the Emperor Nero is about to unleash a genocide amongst Christians. Thousands of Christians are about to be killed. Thousands of Christians are about to be executed. Thousands of Christians are about to be killed and slaughtered by the Roman army as he uses Christians as a convenient scapegoat to unite the whole of the rest of the Roman Empire against the church. It was so bad that the Emperor Nero would, would have Christians hung up in the trees in his garden, doused with oil, and then set alight as lanterns so that he could go for a walk in his garden at nighttime. Christians became human torches in the imperial gardens. The Apostle Paul knows what's about to happen. He's a Roman citizen. He's not daft. He's in Rome. He, he can pick up what's about to happen. And knowing that the church across Europe, knowing that the church in Philippi is about to undergo certain persecution and death, he says to them one thing. Does he say, pray more? No. He does say that later, but he doesn't say pray. That's not his high thing, highest priority. He doesn't say sing more. He doesn't say worship more. He doesn't say fast more. He doesn't say give more. Sixteen times he says, rejoice, rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. If you're going to get through what's about to happen to you, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. And I say it again, rejoice, 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 because the joy of the Lord is your strength. So in Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, he says to them, stand firm in the Lord. Now again, think who they are. These are people who've served in the Roman army. If there was ever people who knew what it was to stand firm, it was people who'd served in the Roman army. I read Asterix the Gaul. I know what the Roman army... I did history at university as well, but I did read Asterix the Gaul, and the Roman army, above all armies, knew what it was to stand firm. 
because they conquered most of the known world by their unique formations, the crocodile and the tortoise and the thing that they did when they got in a square with the shields on their heads. They knew what it was to stand firm. That's why Paul uses this language, stand firm. Oh, we know what that means, stand firm. How do we stand firm? Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. And I say it again, rejoice. And the tense that he uses is a present imperative tense, implying a continual and habitual rejoicing, a deliberate choice. This is not a feeling. This is not an emotion. This is not whipping something up. To choose to rejoice in the Lord is to intentionally and deliberately and purposefully set aside time to remember God's goodness, remember God's kindness, remember God's provision, and remember God's blessing. And as we do that, we rejoice in the Lord, remembering who he is and what he has done. And the result, thirdly, Paul says, verse 5, is let your gentleness be evident to all. Now, this word that he is, dis, is translated in the NIV as gentleness, it's a funny word because it's so much bigger than any of the English translations really can put into it. It's a combination of this, gentleness, patience, softness, modesty, forbearance, graciousness, moderation, reasonableness justice and something better than justice, the quality of a person who knows that rules and regulations are not the last word. I've been trying this week to think how you can describe it, and I think it's that sort of elusive quality that Jesus had. Because if you look through the life and the ministry of Jesus, apart from maybe the Garden of Gethsemane, One of the things that strikes me again and again and again with the person of Jesus Christ is that nothing ever seems to stress him. Faced with the demands of hundreds of people, faced with the demands of people who want healing, faced with the demands of crowds who want to acclaim him as the Messiah and chuck the Romans out, Jesus knows who he is. And to describe it as a a peace and a poise and a contentment or a It's something much more than that. He just knows who he is and knows what he's supposed to do. And you see, this gentleness, it's not something that's weak. It's incredibly strong. It's incredibly resilient. It's incredibly robust. It's incredibly firm at times because it enables Jesus to know exactly what he's to do and exactly what he's to say. Because he's spent time with the Father each morning, he knows the purpose that God has for him at that moment, in that time, with those people. That's something of what this word that's translated as gentleness means. And what Paul is saying to this church in Philippi is, if you reflect, if you remember, if you recall God's goodness and God's kindness and God's generosity and God's power and God's sovereignty and God's control and God's blessing, if you remember those things, if you remember who God is, that will enable you to have a strength and a peace that this world cannot give and that this world cannot understand. Which is why later on he goes on to this to describe it as the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
He's saying, remember who God is. If we're honest, I don't know about you, but most sin, I think, occurs because we choose at times not to remember who God is and therefore what he wants us to do. Sometimes we forget, but sometimes, if we're honest, we deliberately choose not to remember. And what Paul is talking about here, and what rejoicing in the Lord always is about, is deliberately choosing to remember who God is. And whether it's gossip, whether it's an affair, At those moments, whatever sin it is, we deliberately either forget or choose to forget who God is. And Paul is saying the opposite of this. He's saying, remember who God is. Remember how God wants you to live your life. Remember God's character. Remember God's goodness. And therefore, live your life differently. Why? Because, verse 5, the Lord is near, He's at hand, He's close. In geography, in chronology, or time, and proximity. God isn't far away, even though events may be happening around you and to you that make it seem as though God's miles away. He's actually near. God is near. He's coming. He's soon. God is here, and he's in charge, and he's in control, and he knows what he's doing. Remember, Paul says, the Lord is near. And as you remember that the Lord is near, that he's not far away, remember his kindness and his character and his goodness and his faithfulness. God knows what he's doing. And as we do that, we get a different perspective. And joy, real joy, starts to come. And remember again, this is being written by a man who is in prison. This is written by a man who knows that in a few weeks or days, he's going to die at the hands of the emperor. He knows the outcome of the trial that he's about to face. And he shares with him this deep, deep secret that if you have this perspective on life and if you have this perspective on death, if you remember who God is and remember what he's done, then the joy of the Lord is your strength. Last May at the Albert Hall um, some of us on the staff went down to the leadership conference that HDB run. And we saw Nicky Gumbel interview um, Cardinal Tagle from the Philippines. And Cardinal Tagle, uh, at the time he was the, the youngest uh, Roman Catholic cardinal. Um, and just an amazing man. And um, he, he oversaw what apparently is the fourth largest gathering in the history of humanity. When six million people came to a mass that the Pope did in the Philippines. And Nicky Gumbel uh, asked Cardinal Tagle, how do you organize, you know, some of us have difficulty organizing a large service for hundreds of people. How do you do a mass when six million people are involved? And Cardinal Tagle sort of smiled and laughed and said, oh, we pray. And 3,000 of us in the Albert Hall went, I think there's a bit more to it than that. But at one stage, it, it, was, it was a remarkable interview, and it's online, you can go and watch it. But Nicky Gumbel said to Cardinal Tagle, you, you smile a lot, and you laugh a lot. Why is that? 
And the most remarkable thing happened when Nicky Gumbel asked him that question. Cardinal Tagle welled up with tears in his eyes. And he said this, we smile a lot because in the Philippines we cry a lot. People who have suffered know how to smile. And Cardinal Tagle welled up, Nicky Gumbel welled up, and about 5,000 people in the Albert Hall all welled up because we realized the depth of what he was saying. But there is this paradox in human experience, but also deep, deeply within the Christian faith, that suffering produces joy. And that people who have suffered a lot know how to smile a lot because they realize how precious those times of joy are. So this morning, for you and for me, the question is very simple. How joy-filled are you? How filled with joy are you this morning? Because if you are joy-filled, other people will notice. St. Augustine once said that a Christian should be an alleluia from head to foot. A Christian should be an alleluia from head to foot. And if we were to go into your work, if we were to go into your school or hospital or wherever it is that you'll find yourself this week, and we were to go up to your colleagues and say, you know that person? They're a Christian. How would you describe them? Is one of the first words that they would use to describe you or me? You know what? There's something about them. I don't know. I think the best word I can use is joy. Not in a sort of happy, clappy, everything's going to be all right sort of way, but they've got this deep sense of peace and poise and strength and inner resolve. And it's, it's like a joy that just emanates from them. Because that's how we're supposed to live as Christians. John Ortberg, in his book, The Life You've Always Wanted, gives us some suggestions as to how we can pursue the discipline of celebration, the celebration of joy. Firstly, he says, do activities that bring you pleasure. Deliberately put yourself with people who bring you joy. Okay, permission. This week, this month, you have permission to think about people that you like spending time with. And you've got permission, for me, you might not need it, but you might, to deliberately invite that person for a meal and to spend time with them. So what sort of people are we thinking of? Not the people who, when you're asked to go to their house for dinner or to meet them for coffee, you, you meet even be, you sort of pull up outside their house or you're getting towards Starbucks or Costa or a decent coffee shop. And as you get in there, you're thinking, I wonder what time I can leave. That's not the sort of person we're talking about. We're talking about the sort of the person that when you're in their presence, when you're in their company, you never look at your watch. And actually, when the end of the evening comes and you look at your watch, you think, oh, it's that time already. And it just flies by. So who are the people that you want to spend time around? Who are the people that give you joy? Who are the people that, just by being in their presence, make you more joyful? Deliberately and intentionally go after those people this week or this month. Find a joy mentor. 
Somebody that you know, somebody in your sphere of influence, somebody in your circle that you know emanates, radiates joy. Not, you know, we can all think of people who just suck joy out of us. Okay, don't look at them here in church. That's not, that's not, I know you're looking at me, but I mean, that's not kind. But who are the people that you know? Just to be with that person, once I've been with that person, I feel better. I feel more joyful after I've been with them. They give me energy. They give me life. They inspire me. They refresh me. They renew me. Go after that over the next week or over the next month. Save a time with good friends. Or if, if for you, if it's, if it's God's creation, there are some people, one of the sort of spiritual pathways, some people feel closest to God when they're upper a Monroe or when they're, they're on a lock or whatever it might be. It doesn't do it for me, but it does it for some people. And if you feel closest to God, give yourself permission to do that. To go and look at a sunset, to go and look at a sunrise, to go and see a fantastic view. Fourthly, pray for it. If you know that there isn't much joy in your life, you're allowed to pray for it. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. But often we say, oh, I want to be more loving. I want to be kinder. I want to have more peace. I want to be gentler. And I want to be more generous because the church is short of money. But somehow to be be praying that I'd be more joy-filled, that feels a bit selfish. It's not supposed to be selfish. It's so that other people will see that you're different and will see that you're distinctive. I'll be talking more about this this evening, but one of the big things about that robs us of joy is fear. Fear is the opposite of joy. And what's called FOMO, the fear of missing out, which is just so prevalent in our society and culture, particularly through social media, through Instagram and Snapchat and Twitter and Facebook, the idea that other people are having a better life than you, that you're missing out on it. So why not for a week just unplug, for a month, unplug from social media, unplug from television, Netflix, that's a word for some of you. Just unplug from it. Because I don't know about you, but I rarely, I watch a television program, and I, or I might watch two or three uh, episodes on Netflix, and I rarely do I, because I feel so refreshed after that. <laughs> I feel so much better after that. I don't feel like that. Why is that? Well, unplug from it. Because fear is the opposite of joy. And fear of missing out and anxiety robs us of joy. A guy called Chade Meng Tang has written a book called Joy on Demand. And in that book, they explain that joy can be learned as we become aware of the ordinary and small moments of pleasure and delight. And what happens is that actually physiologically, our brains begin to rewire. And we start to become more positive. We start to become more joyful. We start to observe life differently as we observe what they describe as thin slices of joy. Then we become more joyful people. And the joy of the Lord is our strength. It doesn't ignore the pain, it doesn't ignore the problems, it doesn't ignore the difficulties. But the challenge is to thank God in them, not for them, 
that this profound sense of joy, deep joy, robust joy, will sustain us and strengthen us and refresh us and renew us. Gemma, lead us.